This is Transistor.fm. In this episode, part two of our interview with Patio 11, where we discuss how to build a product that will actually make money. You know, in 2010, you were able to stop working at the day job and just pro- just live on product income. Right. Um, so w- was there a portion of that that was consulting as well, or was that all you, you quit because you were making enough on the product? Um, I quit because I was making enough on the product. There was a, there's an asterisk there with regards to consulting stuff. Um, Bingo Car Creator is highly seasonal because it kind of tracks the school year. Okay, so, yeah. Um, sales go down every summer. And I was quitting in April. So I thought, okay, I know I'm fine until the school year ends. And then yep. summer is going to be kind of interesting. Um, and either I'm going to be burning savings or, you know, having it like subsist on credit cards until the school year starts up again. Yeah. But uh, when I went home Christmas 2009, I met a buddy of mine who I had uh, become acquaintances with over half produce. Okay. And uh, my buddy's name is Thomas. He's a security consultant who works in Chicago. Okay. And um, so he knows that I'm pretty good on this uh, online marketing stuff that I've been blogging about for the last couple of years. Oh, um, if it wasn't obvious, I've, I've kept up a blog from the day I started working on Bingo Card Creator in 2006 through 2010 and continuing through now. That's at calzumius.com. Right, calzumius.com. Um, okay. It moved around a bit, but it's there now. Okay. Anyhow, so the um, there's this guy in Hacker News who very smart. We, you know, we're a mutual ad- admiration society of each other's comments, and he was in Chicago where my family's from. So I said, hey, I'm coming home for Christmas. Do you want to get coffee? And my only plan for getting coffee was, why don't we talk about hacker news threads and, like, laugh? Yeah. You know, I'm a geek. I'm, yeah. <laughs> I'm very, very geeky. And so Thomas says, that sounds like an excellent plan. So we go to a coffee shop. He says, hey, this coffee shop happens to be under my office. Do you want to come up to my office? So we go to his office says, hey, why don't we drink our coffee in that conference room over there with my VP? And so Thomas, who founded a security consultancy with a few other guys, and his VP come into the conference room, and they lock the door on me. And they just we just start talking about online marketing, and in particular, how I would do online marketing if I was in charge of it for a security consultancy. Okay. And so this is absolute brain crap for me. Yeah. I talk nonstop for about three hours. And uh, <laughs> at the end of it, Thomas has like a checklist of things that he's going to try. And he says, now, i got to tell you, as a consultant myself, if you hadn't phrased this as, let's get coffee together, and if you had phrased this as, why don't I do a consulting gig for you on improving your online marketing, I would be writing you a check right now. <laughs> so so I, I just quit a job that paid me less than $3,000 a month. Yeah. I thought that $100 an hour would be incredibly generous for an intermediate engineer's time. So my mental peg for my work was 100 bucks an hour. Yeah. I said, well, Thomas, you know, 300 bucks around Christmas. I mean, honestly, that's not enough to worry about doing like a whole invoicing dance or anything, yada, yada, yada. Yeah. I was basically coming up with reasons why I could not do the consulting that I had just done. And Thomas said, I don't think this was worth $300. I think this was worth $15,000 to me. <laughs> and I said, what? And Thomas <laughs> went to his VP and he said, do you think we got $15,000 out of this? And the VP said, 15000 is a little steep. 
And I said, see, the VP, he is sane. And <laughs> the VP then stumbles over my words and says, but we could pay 5000 for it out of the petty cash, no problem. And that was my <laughs> the first time I ever had the inkling that, wow, for-profit businesses really have money to spend on business problems. Yeah. And sure enough, they did actually uh, deploy the advice to much more than either of those two numbers effect within several weeks. Interesting. So, um, that ended up working out pretty well. Yeah. And prior to that, people had like emailed me a couple times and say, said, hey, I read your blog. You seem like a smart guy. Do you consult? And I, and I always said, no, I've got a day job, yada, yada, yada. Um, but when folks mailed me after I quit, instead of saying, I don't think I'm good enough to do consulting, I started to say, yeah, that sounds fun. Why don't we yeah. talk about it? Yeah. And um, with the idea that I can do that during the summer months and then you know, not have to dip into savings or anything. I see. So I started doing consulting. Um, consulting concurrently with the uh, product development. Actually, uh, I say that, but I had a good six months of downtime caused by just total burnout because for the last six months at the day job, I was working a hundred hour weeks, seven days a week, and it just killed me. Oh, yeah. Um, so there's another product story in here. So basically, at no point in my life was I ever thinking, man, I should live up, oh, maybe not true. <laughs> Uh, let me think. Um, I was about to say, at no point in my life did I ever think that I would just live off bingo card grader. And that's not true. During the midst of my burnout, that was an attractive option to me. Yeah. Just coast on bingo card grader, spend you know five hours a week on maintenance, and then just spend the rest of my time living. Mm -hmm. Because I was very much overworked. Uh, the thing that changed my mind on that score was a conversation with Joel Spolsky, who... Um, I kind of got my caught the entrepreneurship bug from his forums and uh, spent a lot of time reading his essays. He's one of my like software heroes. Yeah. And I had the opportunity to meet him at a conference once. And um, I don't know if the entire conversation is for public consumption, but the gist of it was that people who are capable of doing things have an obligation to do them, uh, to uh, bring their gifts to the world. Basically, he had uh, uh, grounded it in a sort of Talmudic understanding of the understand of the relationship between people, society, and uh, capabilities and obligations, which um, I'm not Jewish, I'm actually a strict Catholic, but it kind of spoke to me. Interesting, and, uh, yeah. Wow. Um, it kind of would be a waste if that was all I did. Mm -hmm. And uh, so then I got more serious about shipping the second product that I've been thinking of. So let's talk about the second product. Um, that's a misnomer. There were three second products. Uh, in while I was still at the day job, I had made like inklings in the direction of launching two different things prior to that. Yeah. But um, I'd killed both of them before launch because I I did you know everything the lean startup folks tell you not to do. Okay. Um, I started from I think this sounds like a great problem. I'm gonna go code away in you know my bath cave for a little while, and then I'm gonna try to find customers for it. Yeah, and um, luckily I didn't have them done, but I did. Dip. They were half built in the Batcave before I figured out. Wait, there's no way I can make the numbers work for this for getting uh, customers into it, and I have no clue what the customer even looks like. Yeah, um, but anyhow, so uh, after quitting the day job, I was exposed to a technology called Twilio. Twilio is an API that lets you make phone calls and send uh, text messages from a web application. Mm -hmm. and that. This is not the right way to go about identifying a business. 
Yeah. I thought, wow, that's an awesome capability, and there's so much done by businesses that requires a telephone. So there must be some way I can make a business on top of this new tech that I love playing with. Yeah, you know, that happens a lot. I think, you know, people will see there's some tools or there's, you know, some technology and you'll be thinking, man, like, how can I how can I build a business around that? I think that's a really... Um, it, it's seductive and it's the wrong way to think of it. Yeah, I exactly. It's the way I actually did it. So, you know, uh, do what I say, not what I do. <laughs> so the... I had a notebook full of ideas for what I could do for Twilio. And then one day in the midst in the midst of my being burnt out and you know getting up at noon and feeling like doing not too much, I went out to the cafe where I usually had lunch mm-hmm. and went to the massage therapist next door and said, uh, you know, I spend too much time on the computer, my shoulders are aching, can you give me a massage? Mm-hmm. She said, Yeah, we have a, a two hour wait right now, but um, can see you after two hours. I said, oh, that's fine. I've got an iPad with me. I'll just sit in this chair and wait here for two hours. Fifteen minutes later, she comes back and said, I know I told you two hours later, but it would be really, really good if you could take your massage right now. And I said, oh, um, sure, that's no problem for me. You know, I'm, I have nothing planned today because I'm gainfully unemployed. Yeah. But um, can I ask uh, what changed? And she said, well, my uh, appointment that was scheduled to come in right now didn't come in. Hmm. Like, oh, that's interesting. One of the things that had been in my book of ideas was appointment reminding software. Mm-hmm. Said, um, why didn't you call him to see if he was coming into the appointment? And she said something that stuck with me. I'm a massage therapist. If my hands are on the telephone, they're not on someone's back. And if they're not on someone's back, I'm not getting paid. Mm-hmm. Said, ooh, ooh, that's interesting. Yeah. So the next time I went back to America to see family, uh, again, Chicago. I went to an ATM, took out $400, and started wandering around downtown Chicago just looking for anything that looked like a high-end salon or massage therapy practice or that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And I would walk into them, talk to the lady behind the counter, and say, excuse me, are you the proprietor? And if she said yes, I said, "Um, do you accept walk-ins? If she said yes, I said, all right. I'd like the 30-minute thing, but I have a proposition for you. Rather than having a massage or a um, haircut for the next 30 minutes, I just want to talk to you about the industry because I'm kind of interested in it, and I'll pay you your normal rate. I love this idea. Did it work? It it worked out so well. I think only one person actually uh, took money for it. All the rest were happy to just you know uh, talk to somebody who you know would listen. And I said, so um, what do you do for scheduling? How many appointments do you see in a day? People were telling me they. The vast majority of them did scheduling on pencil and paper or kind of uh, catch-as-catch-can. They yeah. had uh, a lot of appointments relative to walk-ins. They had severe no-show problems. Um, some of them had, they would do appointment reminder phone calls themselves. Some of them meant to, but, you know, too many things going on in the business, never got around to doing them. Some of them had an office manager that was supposed to do that kind of thing, but um, because the kind of people who are office managers at salons tend to not be the most diligent people in the world. It was kind of uh, haphazard. Mm-hmm. There was like a huge amount of problem for it. So I'm like, appointment reminder, totally going forward on it. So um, I released an MVP of it, which was just a one page that uh, showed basically that if you gave me your telephone number, I could um, actually I think I'm getting my timeline wrong. I did the MVP first made a page that if you gave me a telephone number, I would give you a phone call immediately. 
and had this voice actress who was a college student that I hired on Fiverr for ten bucks. Okay. We recorded basically a sales pitch for appointment reminder, and then yeah. said, "If you can come to your fake appointment, which is five minutes from now, please press one." And as soon as you pressed one, it would flash on your computer screen. They just confirmed their appointment. If they had canceled the appointment, we could SMS you right now so that you could reschedule someone and save that money. And um, so I showed that on my uh, iPad to people and asked them, uh, you know, during the during the conversation in Chicago, mm -hmm. I said, "Would you buy this?" And I think uh, five people said yes. They, you know, they were totally in at the price point. I was pitching at like thirty dollars a month. Okay. Okay, so there exists a market for this. So five people out of how many? Ah, uh, good question. Talked to about a dozen people that day. I don't know if I actually got to the sales pitch on everybody, but um, so I think it's less a question of five people out of how many. It's more of a question of can you even find five people in the world who will buy it? Yeah. If you can find five people, there's probably more than five people. Like the world is a big place. If you can't find five people, on the other hand. When you're talking to them and you've got that little, you know, crazy founder glow in your eye that people want to say yes just to get you out of the store, if you can't sell someone with that, you're not going to be able to sell them with a web page. So, mm -hmm. um, might as well not build that. That's my little take on the lean startup methodology for very, very bootstrap startups. Yeah. Well, well, I like that because uh, you know, there's you have this theory of different, you know, ways to do customer development and lean, but then there's the actual practice. And I, I'm always interested, you know, what, what in actual practice, what do people find? And so you're saying if you can find five people, uh, that, that say they'll buy, the world's a big place and there's probably more people that'll buy. Yeah, um, exactly. Now, interestingly, I think the customer development let me a little stray in one respect. The um, the my conception from the time I started the project, and because I was talking to uh, people in massages and uh, massage therapy practices and salons and that sort of thing, was that an appointment is something that you, the client, go to, and there's a another whole market of uh, service providers where the service provider comes to you for the appointment. Or things mm. like exterminators, the trades, HVAC installers, yada yada. That's right. It turns out that they have a much more pressing need to avoid no-shows than a massage therapy practice has. Hmm. Because if a massage therapy practice uh, gets someone, you know, they flake out, yeah, they lose revenue, but it's only about $60 of revenue, and maybe they can slot in a walk-in. Yeah. But if um, you have an HVAC company that has three guys who go out in a van to someone's house, and they get locked out, A, the company is out $200 for that truck roll, um, meaning putting the people in the van and sending them out. Yeah. And B, they probably just lost out on a $2,000 furniture repair job that might get done by one of their competitors now because people don't typically leave broken furnaces for a day. Mm -hmm. and, um, so how did you so, figure that out? How did, how did you discover that need in that market? I think an exterminator or something related to that uh, found me for just... Googling for appointment reminder, and uh, they signed up for the service, and you know the business name was like Bob's Termite Be Gone or whatever. Mm -hmm. I thought interesting. That's an exterminator. An exterminator would use this, and so I, um, you know, it's it's a service that like communication is the point of the service, right? Yeah. So um, it's uh, sending SMS messages between you and your customers, yada yada. So obviously, I, I know this guy's contact information, and he gave an email address to sign up. 
So I said, hey, Bob, the Bob's termite be gone. Yeah. I want to talk about appointments for a little while. I think I have some ideas for you. And, um, you know, I gave him some ideas on better messaging he could use about cancellations. And in return, I said, so why does a terminate be gone place need a uh, appointment reminding software? And he, you know, laid out the, well, three guys in a van burn $200 every time I go out to a uh, site, whether, you know, I get paid or not. Yeah. Like, oh, well, that's interesting. Yeah. Um, and so that helped me uh, change the marketing message a little bit. Um, so, and is that is that a, is that like a primary market you're going after now, or is uh, um, so large like that sort of thing where the uh, the the customer doesn't go to the appointment, the appointment comes to the customer mm-hmm. is probably if you ball them up together, it's a bunch of industries, but that's probably my second largest customer group after probably medical. Um, Medical wasn't even in scope for version 1.0 of a plug reminder because there's this uh, health information and health information privacy and portability act, I think. Okay. Uh, which um, uh, it's an American law about uh, health information uh, security standards that there was some technical legal groundwork that I had to lay before I could um, like say that I could uh, support healthcare providers. Mm-hmm. And it turns out that um, I won't bore your your listeners with the whole story about this because it's much more interesting for my business than for their businesses. Mm-hmm. But um, it turns out that there's various hacks around that. And so I'm kind of in a... Hmm. Well, the less said about that, the better. <laughs> but, yeah, suffice to say, there are, there, there are hospitals on the uh, on appointment reminder right now. As a matter of fact, I think eight of the largest 10 U.S. hospitals are on appointment reminder. Interesting. Yeah. Sadly, not for all of their appointment needs. Yeah. But, you know. And is this, like, appointment, when did you launch Appointment Reminder? Um, so the MVP I created in maybe May of 2010, a month after quitting the day job, I launched it in December of 2010. Uh, so it's been going on for just a little over two years now. Okay. And is it, how does it, um, like, in terms of your whole world of revenue, what what portion of that does it represent? Okay, um, so we didn't mention it in the interview, so just backtracking a little bit, a bit, I've been very transparent with many parts of my business for the last couple of years. Uh, Bingo Card Creator, for example, has a page that you can go to that'll literally say what my sales are for every month for the last six years. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm perpetually will I, won't I, I'm taking investment for a point reminder. And because that makes it difficult for me to disclose numbers. Yeah. Um, Not in that like investors will hate me if I don't disclose numbers um, because it's the opposite. Most companies don't. But basically, if I disclose numbers, then they can see the numbers without having to talk to me. Yeah. But if I don't disclose numbers, then to get a insight into the business, they have to talk to me. And if they come out of the woodwork and talk to me, I basically get implicit permission to pitch them should I ever um, decide to take investment for it. So going to avoid saying like how big appointment reminder is in regard in relation to my other businesses. Okay. Um, can I just but, mention if, if you're like if you're wondering, you know, extrapolate a little bit from the fact that it's used in eight of the top ten US hospitals. Yeah, yeah. That I mean the the market seems big. And I, I think one one thing I'm 
I, I'm thinking as I'm talking to you is the markets you've gone into. So teachers, massage therapists, there, there's a lot of folks that try to launch products for those groups. Mm-hmm. And um, not a lot of people think about launching products for exterminators. Um, what do you think, like, do you think that there's still, um, it, it's still worthwhile launching a product, for example, f- for teachers or for massage therapists? Or do you think that um, product people need to be going after these other markets that they might not have thought about? So Point Reminder is sort of a broad horizontal product, which happens to target in, uh, in the marketing individual verticals like massage therapy and whatnot, but it was mm-hmm. never a product built you know, by massage therapists for massage therapists. Yeah. Uh, with specific regards to elementary and high school educators, for your custom, uh, your listeners who might be thinking of getting into building a product business, I'm going to recommend that you don't go after teachers, <laughs> uh, especially if you do, well, pretty much for any reason. Um, I love teachers. I love education. I've worked six years in this field. The amount of pain you go through for like increment of success you get is off the charts compared to working in B2B, uh, business mm-hmm. to business. Businesses have a lot more money. The people who are responsible for making a purchasing decision in the business aren't spending their own money to buy your thing, where teachers typically are spending their own money to buy your thing. Mm-hmm. So teachers are very reluctant to spend $30 of their own money where the office manager at a business is very not reluctant to spend $200 a month of that business's money. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Um, the top line plan for appointment reminder that's actually exposed on the website is 200 bucks. So that's $2,400 a year in revenue. That's about 100 bingo card sales, like a month of sales in some months that I can get from one person who just you know, comes to the website and signs up five minutes later and never calls me. Yeah. Um, and that doesn't even crater the approach to the bridge to the you know um, high touch enterprise sales where I'm talking to a hospital individually about well quotas of price if we have ten thousand patients a month. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, yeah. Um, I would recommend avoid the education market. I would tend to avoid hobbyist markets uh, for the same reason, especially hobbyist markets with the, which are uh, lots of overlaps with geeks. Uh, mm-hmm. They typically are way way overserved. Mm-hmm. Uh, for example, if you're like, and again, I'm a geek. I own it. I play Dungeons and Dragons. You also <laughs> play Dungeons and Dragons, and you're thinking, man, there's something that can be done with a computer that hasn't been done yet for Dungeons and Dragons. A, I think you're probably wrong, but B, that is not a great use of your time from a like financial returns perspective. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, make something for boring businesses uh, or. Other underserved markets that are valuable. Um, one I talk about a lot is making products for women because, uh, well, if you've been around a developer conference ever, you've noticed the uh, the switch in the community. Um, people largely make things to scratch their own itches, and there being less women around um, who have capability of making uh, software products, less of their itches get scratched. Mm-hmm. Some of them are, for example, in uh, jobs that are largely female-dominated, like, say, nursing and whatnot, um, uh, or office managing. There's mm-hmm. compelling business problems that can be solved by not-too-difficult software, uh, which can be worth substantial amounts of money. Yeah. You've talked about 
how you, you, you know, your, your initial kind of taking the MVP for appointment reminder around in Chicago. Yeah. What would you, so if, if you're just, cause a lot of product people, like people that are interested in building products, mm-hmm. so sometimes we're, we are people that are sitting in an office all day or, you know, we, we have a life or we might, you know, the, the, the things we interact with are, you know, our kids go to school. So we think about teachers, we go to the massage therapist, we go to the, get our haircut, all, all these things. And so we're often thinking about those kinds of problems, or we're thinking about our own problems. Mm-hmm. Do you have any hacks for, for ways you've kind of uh, gotten to like gotten to know some problems from people in boring businesses, as you've said? Mm-hmm. I think being relentlessly curious and talking to people about their business problems kind of helps on that. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I have no, I consume services from, say, massage therapy practices, but I also consume pizza. That doesn't exactly make me a pizza chef or a massage therapist, right? Yeah. But I love talking to folks for any reason. So, uh, keeping ear open, talk to folks. People love talking about their problems. Like yeah. Just a sympathetic ear is one of the most um, motivational things that you can offer somebody. To just say, hey, you know, you're a nurse. What sucks about being a nurse? You've yeah, got 15 minutes uh, talking to someone while you're you're waiting your kid to get uh, for your kid to get out of the doctor's appointments, or um, say you, you know, you run reception at a dental clinic. What software do you use? Do you mm-hmm. like it? And the answer is going to be no. Why don't you like it? Um, uh, who in the? Uh, I'm just curious about your industry. Who in the company makes decisions about purchasing things? Yada yada yada. Yeah. Um, but just, you know, talk, 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 talk. You've got friends. They're probably in um, diverse walks of life. Talk to them about things. My father's a real estate developer. I've been hearing his real estate development stories for the last uh, uh, 30 years of my life. Could talk to him about, hey, Dad, you know, what do you do manually still in your business? Mm-hmm. They do a heck of a lot of the data gathering that they do to source deals uh, is... Um, it revolves around like paper maps and Googling things randomly mm-hmm. where there must be some way to automate that process. And it would probably be worth, you know, uh, my father works in commercial real estate. The basically smallest deal that his company could go after is in the millions of dollars. Think of how much um, increasing the effectiveness of him at sourcing deals by 10% would be worth for that company. Yeah. So, And is that the kind of math you do when you're, because on one hand, yeah. you can go find a, a business problem, mm-hmm. uh, but is that the kind of math you do when you're trying to figure out how much could they potentially pay or how much would this be worth to them? Right. So there's two things you can offer to any business to uh, to induce them to get into a business relationship with you, whether that's buying a product or consuming your consulting services or employing you. The first is to increase their revenue, and the second is to decrease costs. Of the two of them, increasing revenue is generally uh, more motivational from a businessman perspe- businessman's perspective. Yeah. So, you, um, I would generally tend to look for kind of high visibility problems that are close to the money, as opposed to we can do inventory tracking software, which is going to save you five dollars on your next toilet purchase, toilet paper purchase. Um, yeah. It's probably not enough to get them to change the way that they do business. Every business already has like ossified ways that they do business right now. And you have to, you know, your mission, if you choose to accept it, is to convince them to go from their current process into using your software that they've never heard of before. So you have to have a really compelling advantage over what they're doing right now. 
Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, shaving off a buck here or a buck there is not a really compelling advantage, but plus 10% improvement on uh, the effectiveness of employees that cost, you know, four, fi- four or five figures a month. Um, you know, if you're, like, we make your software developers who cost 20000 a month fully loaded. We make them 10% more effective. That's 2000 bucks per developer, and mm-hmm. you might have 30 of them. Yeah. You're willing to pay a lot of money for that. That's right. That's why... And that's why a lot of software that targets software developers is sold on a per seat basis, by the way. Mm-hmm. But In- interest uh, similarly, uh, you know, if you were thinking who in the organization to make software for, uh, folks, minimum wage employees on the on the ground floor, probably not as good as the folks who are uh, a they have the authority to buy things and b they're uh, a bit higher in the organization, higher salaries and whatnot, and imputed costs to their time, but. And that's not a law of nature. That's just kind of a rule of thumb. Yeah. Well, and I, I think that's a, a really um, important point is that sometimes you just identify a problem and the problem is painful. Like you, you just really want to solve this thing that's painful. Um, but if you're going to make a business out of it, there has to be someone who's going to be willing to pay you for that. And then you, mm-hmm. you, have, to sub, you have to subtract some other things, right? You have to subtract, you know, how much your time but also how, how much time and effort is it going to take to uh, support this thing? Right. And uh, some, we don't always do that math. Sometimes the, the, it's just, you know, the problem is so so painful that we don't think about, well, how much are people willing to pay for this and mm-hmm. how long, how much time would it take to support it? And one thing that people don't appreciate enough is that there's different types of pain. Mm. For one, for example, is pain that people know they have versus pain that people experience but don't mm. know that they have, um, or they don't like. There's the kind of pain that has people searching for solutions actively, and the kind that people figure is just uh, you know cost of doing business. You want to be solving a problem that people know they have the problem and are actively looking for solutions, rather than something that the pain is bearable or it's just considered so endemic to the condition that they uh, are not actively trying to get better at that. For example, hmm. so among people who could buy appointment reminder, they have the word no-show. They, you know, it's a hair on fire problem for them. When I mention, um, uh, would you be interested if I could get rid of all your no-shows or substantial percentage of your no-shows, their eyes just light up. Mm-hmm. And you know they actively search on Google for it. And by comparison, uh, well, let's use an example from education. Gradebook software—it sucks. Most teachers do not wake up in the morning and say, "You know, my gradebook—it sucks." It's just like, many things about teaching suck. Gradebook mm-hmm. is one of them. Yeah. Every teacher puts up with it. Yeah. Um, and so. I know a few people have made gradebook software, and uh, that doesn't typically work out great for them. And what do you think? So, because this is another thing I think that's challenging is that, yeah, when you you finally identify a pain, and you go, you know, this is a real pain, like, like it's definitely a pain. But when you start talking to people, like like you've said, it's not like a hair on fire issue. Um, mm-hmm. Why why is it so hard to convince people? That like even if they they have the problem, 
why is it so hard to convince people when it's not one of those things, when it's just like, uh, you know, it's not something that they, they're actively searching for an answer for? Mind if I turn that question around a little bit? I think as developers and as product people, we have the ability to create things, which is magical. But we get a little higher in our own supply sometimes, such that, you know, I'm capable of creating the software. Ergo, it's going to have these awesome features. And ergo, that's going to be awesome. It's going to change people's lives forever, such that they will not remember their life prior to using it. Mm-hmm. And we could stand to learn a little bit of humility and meet users where they actually are. Mm-hmm. And to a certain point of view, I think that why is it hard to convince people that they're in pain from these antiquated solutions that they're using that are clearly suboptimal? Dot, dot, dot. Maybe they're not. Um, maybe we should have the humility to talk to them and to actually figure out what they genuinely want, what mm-hmm. they think if they need, and meet them there. And, you know, users, building things is not most users' core competence. So they often won't understand what's capable or what's possible um, like we do. Maybe they have, you know, they can articulate their pain, but they wouldn't uh, necessarily come to a great solution without guidance from us. But we should definitely listen to them and be actively engaged in them in the process of creating ideas for what to make their lives better. Because ultimately, you know, it's their life that has to get better or the product is a failure. Mm-hmm. And I, I think, you know, maybe in response to that, some people would say, well, does that mean we're just always going to go after kind of this low-hanging fruit of, you know, um, so there's like the, in a business, there's the things that are like hair on fire issues that you need to deal with all the time and they're a real pain and, you're, you know, they're making your boss stressed out. But then there's these deeper underlying issues that, you know, maybe there's not a lot of Google searches for those or, or whatever. Um, and those are important. Like we need to deal with those kind of underlying important issues that are, you know, not just on the surface, but deeper. Um, what, what, uh, you know, how would, how should we respond to that? Is when we're building software, are we always going to be just building for hair on fire issues? Well, it would be awesome if we could build software, which would solve every educational problem in the United States. But given that most of us are, you know, makers doing this doing this on the side, we have limited resources. Uh, we have to have an appreciation for what is reasonably possible, mm-hmm. and that's going to largely counsel um, going after things that are low-hanging fruit. Even for folks who, you know, are on the uh, funded startup track, so they can afford to work um, uh, without revenue for a couple of years on a project and uh, uh, try to blow up. They typically go after problems that, you know, like they're problems. People generally, genuinely feel them, but they're not the kind of problem that gets written about in a sociology book, um, to put it mildly. Mm-hmm. And so that's partially a pragmatic answer. But in addition to it being a pragmatic answer, I think there's honestly a lot of good that can be done by just solving people's pressing problems that come up all the time, simply because if we keep, you know, knocking down all the problems that come up all the time and, uh, you know, exposing each layer of increasingly higher fruit after the first one, mm-hmm. um, their lives are getting better all the time, right? right. Um, software doesn't do 
one one hundredth of a percent of what it possibly could do for most people. You can mm -hmm. tell because most people's only use of software is email and Facebook at the moment. Mm -hmm. But even with that, you know, email revolutionized how almost every knowledge worker worked. Obviously, you're not going to create email, but uh, yeah, you probably won't create the next version of email or the next version of Facebook. Yeah, but each incremental improvement that generally helps people out generally genuinely helps people out, and the scale that you can achieve with incremental improvements when delivered over the internet, if you understand the marketing side of things too, is just absolutely incredible. Um, I think I did the math once. I've probably taught over two million kids to, you know, I've taught two million kids a reading lesson with mm -hmm. uh, being a card creator, which if I was a teacher working in, you know, in a school teaching 30 kids at once, I don't think I could teach two million student lessons in an entire career. Mm -hmm. but and be able to do that while sleeping, thanks to Bingo Card Creator scaling so well. Yeah, and it doesn't scale so well in like the Facebook sense of the word. You know, it's just a website can work when I'm not. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, if you can, um, and obviously Bingo Card Creator is one of the most trivial apps I could possibly think of. Uh, that's partially why I picked it. Yeah. But if knowing, if I had known then what I would, what I know now, I would probably would have gone with something a bit larger in scope for my first business. Yeah. Not not 10 orders of magnitude larger in scope. Yeah. Um, I think we're going to we're gonna wind down pretty quick here, but I, I'd like to ask uh, maybe a couple more questions, and then if you have anything else you'd like to, uh, to share before you go. Um, and I think, you know, one thing that we, we didn't touch on here that would be interesting to cover maybe in the future is uh, uh, knowledge products. And so, there, you know, mm -hmm. there's software products and sometimes it'd be interesting kind of exploring that but maybe we could do that uh, uh, another time uh, yeah I think that is a deep topic which I've gotten interested in kind of recently and mm -hmm. uh, we could definitely talk for an hour on that one too yeah so why don't we table that for maybe the next time sure so let's close with this I, I mean I live in Canada so I, for me this is not as big of an issue but I'm for people that live in other parts of the world uh, how important is the American market right now for building software products? And if you are in Asia or Europe or, you know, Africa or somewhere else, would you still build a product for the American market? Or would you, you know, look at, you know, your local market? Or would you look at maybe, uh, maybe there's markets I'm not even aware of, like maybe Europe is doing really well right now. So what are, Internationally, what do you think is a, a good starting place for people building products? Uh, so this is a question near and dear to my heart, considering I live in Japan. Mm -hmm. I'll tell you, all of my products target primarily American uh, companies or American customers. One of the reasons for that is that while my Japanese is pretty good, my ability to write marketing copy, copy in Japanese is not that great. Mm -hmm. And so I'm largely uh, selling to the people who I know how to sell to. Uh, the other, another reason is that there's just um, there's significant differences in how the software lifecycle adoption cycle works at Japanese companies versus American companies. And I won't give you the entire um, list of how Japanese companies are pathological and how pathological and how they do uh, decision making, but suffice it to say that they don't really sign up for software as a service with their credit card after reading a website, which is sort of critical to me. Mm -hmm. So I end up um, selling to American companies. But partly that's 
because I am a foreigner living in Japan. If I was a Japanese person, I would probably sell to Japanese companies instead. Um, while it's true that America is the largest software market and is a few years ahead of the game with regards to um, getting on new innovations, like say the software as a service model, uh, mm -hmm. American companies spend a lot more on software as a service products, uh, both on like a absolute basis and a per company basis than uh, companies in other countries do. Mm -hmm. you know, it's not uh, in say Japan, it's not really a uh, it's getting there, but it isn't really a uh, well-understood thing yet. Mm -hmm. um, anyhow, but even with that being the case, uh, uh, targeting your local market has a lot to recommend it. One that you know there is probably just like you don't go into an overfished pond like um, D and D gamers. Mm -hmm. The U.S. is kind of an overfished pond relative to well, a heavily fished pond relative to any other country in the world. So uh, you know, there's a lot of software that does uh, that does say accounting and whatnot that just won't work because for a office in say Canada because it's built around American accounting standards and the way American customers expect things to work. That's right. For how uh, Canadian folks expect things to work. Mm -hmm. Similarly, uh, a lot of ideas that would be Oh my God! A invoicing app. We've got like a hundred of them mm -hmm. in Japan. There's only one invoicing app worth talking about. It's called Make Leaps. Um, a friend of mine runs it, but hmm. that's it's a ridiculously mature market in the United States. And FreshBooks has FreshBooks has kind of sewn it up. Yeah. Um, and then there's other competitors, but in Japan it's wide open, and the conversation is less: Do you use FreshBooks or do you use one of the competitors? But it's: Are we ever going to use software for invoicing? And so even with a, a software that might not be as mature as is, um, you know, um, software has a lot to recommend over pencil and paper, yeah. which is the primary competitor for MakeLeaps. So MakeLeaps is doing really, really well. So if you're in one of those markets that's not the States, you might say, consider maybe offering something that's not right. being offered yet. Um, and what what about there's, there's I think there's absolutely no shame in taking something that works in the American market and bringing a version to your market, for example. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Okay, don't copy Bingo Card Creator, and I'm not saying that because I don't want the competition. I'm just saying it because it's <laughs> not a great, wonderful use of your time. Yeah. Hypothetically, if you're an Australian, the way that Bingo works. Um, is different in Australia than it is in the United States, and most Australians can't use my Bingo Card Creator. So you can hypothetically make Bingo Card Creator because you know Bingo Card Creator as a business works from seeing it work for me. Mm -hmm. Ergo, it should probably work in Australia. And again, don't do it, but there's, <laughs> that's an example. Where if you see FreshBooks working in America, then FreshBooks probably should work in Japan too if someone would just go to the, um, or invoicing software should work in Japan. Um, yep. If you see, what's that German uh, company that uh, they're, their shtick is they uh, they take American startups and clone them for Germany and eventually get acquired. Um, yeah. A lot of people wag their fingers at them and say that's not innovative. But given that American companies don't typically launch the entire world at the same time, I think that does accelerate the adoption process of that technology by the German audience. And other than you know, sort of like an irrational preference for innovative business models, I don't see how that's bad in any way. That's so, right. 
That's right. You know, like, don't be afraid to make a, you know, to use an idea that has been done before, even if it's been done in your market too. I'm certainly not the first Vingo card creator software that came out. Probably the only one that's actually good. But uh, you know, yeah, there you go. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for uh, for your time, Patrick. I, I re- really enjoyed the conversation. Glad we could make it happen. Um, yeah, it, glad too. It, it was uh, useful for some of your listeners. Yeah. No. Well, and I I, I like how um, uh, we were really able to get a lot of your backstory in the first part of our conversation, and uh, I felt like the the second half has a lot of just really practical uh, kind of tips that people could walk away with. So both are important that we get the context and the story, we get to know the person, but then we can also uh, walk away with some practical things to, to apply. Is there anything that you'd, else that you want to say quickly or, or leave us with before uh, we go? Sure. Well, I may as well uh, give people some links that they can look at. Uh, my blog is at calzumias.com slash blog. We'll link that up in the comments to the interview. Yeah. Um, I have an email list that you can get on at training.calzumias.com. Uh, I send out an email every week or two about uh, software and software marketing topics. And um, this is kind of my business, but it's also my hobby. I really love talking about software and can basically have unlimited propensity to do so. So if you ever want to talk about it, drop me an email. My email address is patrick.calzumias.com. Perfect. Well, I've certainly enjoyed talking to you. I'm going to have to have you back uh, on the show again sometime in the future, and uh, maybe we can talk about uh, information products next time. Sure. We'd love to do that. Thanks very much, much, Justin. It was an honor to be invited. Great. Thanks, Patrick. Podcast hosting is provided by Transistor.fm. They host our MP3 files, generate our RSS feed, provide us with analytics, and help us distribute the show to Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and more. If you want to start your own podcast or you want to switch to Transistor, go to Transistor.fm slash Justin and get 15% off your first year.